and we're back. I hope you guys were able to use that time productively, and we're just going to start this fresh so that I can put out a clean audio episode. So some of you guys don't even know that we were already doing an episode, but you don't want to hear about that. Anyways, welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. SummerPortsTour.com, got all sorts of tour dates coming at you. Peckin, Indiana, uh, the outside of Nashville, and uh, Birmingham, Alabama, this Sunday coming out. It's going to be a spectacular weekend. All right, so uh, I was out on the road I do have some random topics I'd like to address, and then I'll give you guys the full report on all the news rundown uh, of everything that you have to know, because I know you've been lost. You, you got stuck in conversations over the weekend. People were looking for your opinion on stuff, and you're like, I don't know. I didn't hear much run your mouth this week, so I have no idea what the hell is going on. And then you had to be like these other people who don't have opinions or anything to say. And I apologize. I apologize that you got stuck at social functions, and you weren't able to pick fights with your relatives because you were more informed on the actual facts and information and opinions that they hadn't heard anyone. I don't like to leave you guys like that. I don't like to leave you guys as the, like the rest of the boring world that has no information about anything and just walks around wrong and confused all the time. So I apologize for that, but the point is we're back now with the stacked episode. And right off the top, I'd like to say for the first time in my life, I sat in first class and I want some more money. It wasn't a very long amount of time in first class. I got booked on some sort of a transfer flight, even though I was only going down to Florida. Could have been just two hours on a flight. Instead, I turned two hours into four hours, but got to spend two of those hours in first class. And if there's one thing I learned about being in first class is that I'd actually like to have some money. Because you know what I discovered about having money? It's not that like you sit up there and they give you like a like a pedicure, they lick your toes, they give you a massage, you sit in the chair and you go, oh my God, this is so wonderfully comfortable. It's that they actually treat you like a human being. You know, like I'm telling you, every time you get on a flight, you just know that they're being ruthless and they're not treating you like a human being. And you feel a little bit worse about yourself because you're like, where's my dignity? And so you know what, you know what money actually affords you? Just having a little bit of dignity. It's not that like it's spectacular. It's not like they start coming up to you with like incredible cups of coffee or that, you know, it's not like Epstein's plane where they got children who are going to give you massages. There's nothing that glamorous about it. Not that I'm saying kids, you got the joke. Anyways, It's not that it's glamorous, it's just that you actually feel like a human being. And then you go back to coach and you realize, man, these people could treat you like a human being. They just decided that you haven't spent enough money with them for them to treat you like a human being. My favorite part about sitting in first class is though when they make the announcement and they go, uh, we're going to board the rest of the plane now, so if you could please look away and not look at the other animals that we're about to board. We are officially done being nice to you people until we can seat everyone in the back and then put that curtain up. So we hope that you got the beverages that you required, that you were able to stow your luggage and use the restroom because we will now be boarding the filthy animals. Please either stare directly at them at disgust or gaze away and look at other things so that they know that you are looking, that you are treating them with disdain. That's my favorite part about sitting in first class is, uh, I don't know, maybe you never sat in first class. You didn't know that they made that, they made that, uh, announcement. All right. Here's another, uh, thing that I was thinking about the airport is I think that they should make official like airport rule that you're not allowed to take meetings at the airport. Who the fuck do you think you are that if I'm sitting over here and I'm trying to get work done on my laptop, you get to sit right next to me and just conduct an entire meeting? Who are these people that feel so comfortable and good about themselves? And, And I hear these meetings, the decisions you're making are not that important. I hear you over there running your business meetings from the Delta Gate 
of, you know, Louisiana or wherever the fuck I've been. I wasn't in Louisiana recently. But every once in a while, you get stuck. We're all stuck here. We all have agreed that we're not going to get the work done that we have to get done. We're all not taking the business phone calls that we're supposed to be taking. That's because we're all stuck in this airport together that they told us to get here two hours early for, and then the plane's like, we're all dealing with this. But I think that they should just officially, because there's some people that feel like they're important enough that they get to actually conduct these things for us all to listen to. I like to sit right next to them and take take notes on their meeting. That's what I do. No, no meetings at the airport. Or if you do a meeting, they should ban them so that you got to do the meetings like you're conducting a drug deal. And you're sitting there and you're like, I'll order four milkshakes. And then on the other end of the meeting, they're like, so you want us to uh, expand two more buildings? I said, I'll take four of them. But just official, like, big-ass signs. No conducting business at the airport. Unless it's, if it's an email. You can do it in text. All right. Uh, I think that's it for the random topics. Let's get into uh, all the news that's been going on over the last couple days. Let's start with this uh, Devin Archer uh, stuff. So, as you guys know, they've been yelling for a long time. Hunter Biden, this is a corrupt individual. And not only is, uh, I mean, Joe Biden's a corrupt individual. He's been uh, working this racket with Hunter Biden. They're getting paid to run around the country. And uh, I think I've talked about this before, but to me, there's a distinction between hard corruption and soft corruption. I don't know why I said it like that, but I did. Uh, All right, soft corruption is, you know, in every other country, maybe you get shakedowns going on. Like you get people who are going, we're going to investigate your company. Every company's corrupt. And so you got to get someone who scares away the investigators. And so you go hire people. Should they be conducting this kind of corruption? No. But to me, that's kind of soft corruption. It's not the, it's not the same thing as like, uh, you know, selling trade secrets to, to China or, um, or, you know, basically engaging in more treasonous activities. And I bet every single person, like that's kind of just the way power works is, uh, you know, people in power might be able to get a meeting that other people can't. So like, for example, take like Michael Jordan's son. I bet Michael Jordan's son, if he went out to Hollywood, could probably get hired at a agency because like film producers might just be willing, like, or Tom Cruise's kid. If you're Tom Cruise's kid, you can probably instantly get a job in Hollywood because other producers and film studios might be willing to take a conversation with you because your dad's Tom Cruise and off of that little Cruise name, it's more like they might think that they actually have access to Tom or they might think if the movie's not working, Tom might promote it or that Tom might bail out the kid. And so all of a sudden you're, you're worth even taking a meeting with. And now you might actually be some drug addict who's happens to be Tom Cruise's son going around Hollywood, pretending like you and Tom are always working on projects. You got access to your dad and none of that's true. Actually, your dad has written you off. Well, I feel like people would know about it by then which actually we're going to make the reverse argument in a second. So just be be prepared for a full reversal here. But back to the Tom Cruise story, you might not even be good at that. You might be an absolute idiot, but you might be able to partner with a film producer who's really good at that, actually makes you a 50% partner in the business because you're very good at opening up doors. And the fact that you're very good at opening up doors is worth that guy doing most of the work because then he's able to close more deals. So like, for example, maybe you're a producer and then you're working with this cruise kid. And so now when you call up China for money to film your, uh, your big blockbuster, you get to go look and we got Tom Cruise's son working on this. And they go, oh, wow, it's the cruise name. This thing is clearly going to work. Now, that probably works to some point. And so there is a distinction between hard corruption and soft corruption. And all these people are in on this racket. I'm sure every single one of these kids of every single advanced politician 
probably gets jobs that pay them outside of their pay grade because they've got a bit of a last name and that gives them access to things that other people don't have access to. Um, and so, you know, the Clintons, I mean, that was probably harder corruption that they're selling, uh, sending military gear and making decisions for stuff that's going to be going to Saudi Arabia. And so you get the, uh, the Clinton foundations making all sorts of money while she's got access to power. And then she leaves her position in power and those donations, they fall off a cliff or, uh, what happened with, uh, the Kushners and, uh, and Donald Trump getting paid to have his name on hotels. They're all in on this racket. So what would be more interesting in regards to the Bidens and actually proving some sort of a corruption is are we currently engaging in a war in the Ukraine with massive amounts of people dying because they're trying to get favored contracts to to BlackRock or to this other military company. Like that's like the hard corruption stuff that gets very interesting. That That's the type of stuff that you would want to actually prove. All right. So they've been like kind of circling that they're going to prove firm corruption in the Biden family. And then you keep talking about all this Hunter stuff. And then you get this Devin Archer guy who was his uh, his business partner. And so you keep having these floated stories connecting that obviously Joe Biden knew that Hunter Biden was uh, was uh, that Hunter Biden was selling the influence, but he wasn't just peddling influence that he didn't have. Joe Biden was actually in on the racket. And so once again, you get this testimony behind closed doors with this Devin Archer guy, and you're left in the exact same gray area that you ever were. There you go. It's new information just serving up more gray. It's like if a, the, the, the waiter brought you out a steak that was gray, and you're like, can I get a not gray steak? And he goes, no problem. We'll get right on that. And then he brought you a bigger gray steak. There you go. It's like the crystal ball was murky, and then the wizard shook it, so it was even murkier. And well, so I guess he added a little bit of information here, but at the same time added zero information. And so first they do the, the testimony behind closed doors and they go, all right, he confirmed that at least on 20 different phone calls, Joe Biden got was on speakerphone. But then he also supposedly gave direct testimony that uh, what was it that 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 Hunter was peddling in uh, was just peddling influence they didn't actually have but then that congressman had to retract didn't have to retract his statement but the epoch times reported in the actual transcript in which the devon archer guy uh fought against that then devon archer goes on uh tucker carlson for an entire like two hours it was completely boring i don't even understand why uh, uh the tucker carlson was sitting back and just letting this guy talk so much and not being like yeah but i don't understand why are you partnering with the crackhead why would you have partnered with this crackhead unless you knew that it was giving you the access? How is it possible that all this access is happening without a direct conversation? And so I listened to this whole thing, and I think Devin Archer was just kind of saving his own ass and going like, yeah, it was all wink, wink, nod, nod, but I never took part in those conversations. And he gave the most childish act uh, thing I ever heard, like, sure, that, that prosecutor, that corrupt prosecutor got fired, but we always, we never, we actually wanted that prosecutor. We were hoping that that prosecutor would be with the prosecutor had already been handled. If anything, that was the most crackhead incident that Hunter ever had was that we said we were actually good with this prosecutor. And then they got the prosecutor fired. Wink, wink, nod, nod. The only reason that at some point these people are getting paid in the way that they're being paid is because the wink, wink, nod system actually works. And there is some firm corruption there. But with that said, you know, even I think Devin Archer said directly you know, Joe Biden isn't so dumb that he was actually going to get on a call and he was going to say anything. Everyone was aware of the fact that his presence sent a signal that there was the access to the tremendous amount of power. But 
I'm going to go back to that little signaling only works because when push comes to shove and they actually need someone to hold up all the money going to a country unless something's demanded, like when push comes to shove, the people will actually step in and sell favored secrets and contracts and put in orders and mark up prices and all the shenanigans that we know goes on. And so like, The signaling only works because if you actually need the power, it might be there to support you. Like, that's why people will pay so much money for it. Can't say that as an absolute. But anyways, it's just going to be in a gray area because I'm sure in whatever way uh, Joe was able to, you know, run it through Hunter and just wink, wink, nod, nod, never actually say anything. It's a pretty good system. And so with that, I think we might be having a similar thing with Donald Trump. And so I just want to make it clear that as we break down that this entire criminal indictment of Donald Trump is absolute lunacy, that doesn't necessarily let, from a moral standpoint or from just like a truth standpoint, let Donald Trump off the hook for that maybe he sat down, was a complete and total sore loser, said, my God, I'm straight up losing this election, and then thought, well, how can I stay in power even though I lost? And so the only two lawyers he could find who are willing to work up and concoct such nonsense are people like Sidney Powell and they're people like uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani. And so he goes, cool, I'll make those my lawyers and he's making calls every day and he goes hey what college professor is willing to concoct me some crazy theory for why like wait there's a we're not even going off the votes we're going off of these uh the uh, the, the, the the what are they called what's the actual people that we that we put in our votes and then they put in their things you should know these things if you're going to do a whole episode on it anyways so you know maybe the whole thing like was not criminal but also pretty scumbaggy. And so, yeah, I just, I agree with like the, the, the whole thing is just rooted in nonsense that everyone's able to kind of get away with everything uh, just because it's all wink, wink, nod, nod, which is pretty, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, it, it's, it, I guess I, it, it's annoying. That's all I can really say about it. All right. But with all that said, let's do a Donald Trump deep dive because all week I've been uh, collecting these little articles and tidbits and all the information that's coming out. And so before we get into the deep dive, I'm going to give you guys the broad strokes on why this entire thing is ridiculous and probably won't stick. It's probably, uh, I mean, it's corruption that they're going after him for this stuff and that they let everyone else off for everything that they get let off for. Um, And at this point, we could just leave it to the voters. So just if you guys want one simple takeaway, we're already coming up to the election season. They've already made as much of a stink as they can out of about January 6th. I guess it's pretty clear that Donald Trump wasn't able to prove the fraud. So at this point, we could just leave it to the voters. But now, as they actually hold him responsible for what happened on January 6th and Donald Trump colluding, or I I guess uh, criminally trying to stay in office after he lost the election, my first question was what he was doing even illegal. He was working with a lawyer. The guy's name was John Eastman. And let's just say that there was zero corruption in that election whatsoever. Let's just say that that election was 100% honest. Did Eastman actually sit down and see a loophole in the way that elections were conducted? And so he realized, oh, if we can, like, he might have even been from a legal standpoint, there doesn't even need to be fraud in the election. 
They fucked up in the way that they concocted these things. And you as president have the authority to reject the the voters from each state and just put in your own people. And that's the way that the rules are here. Now, people aren't going to like that, but if you claim that it was because of fraud and that you have to go prove the fraud in the election, then the broad public would probably accept it. But at the end of the day, there's a loophole here because they fucked up in the way they designed the elections, and here's how you just stay in power. And so, is that a good thing for a president to do? Probably not. But is that illegal? I mean, if you guys wrote a bad law and someone found out a loophole, and this is ridiculous, I understand that the entire country would be outraged and go, wait, the guy who lost the election just gets to stay in power because you have this dumb loophole? I'm pretty sure that would go to the Supreme Court. And then maybe the Supreme Court itself would say, hey, we can't allow loopholes of this size to be here. But the point I'm trying to make was, was there at least a legal theory there that it was reasonable that they might have been just been trying to take advantage of a loophole is now sitting down trying to come up with how can I take advantage of a loophole and pretend like I won when I lost. Is that cool? No. Would we all be outraged? Yes. Is that illegal? Not really. We've all played with cheaters before. You know, sometimes you can hold cheaters accountable for cheating because they actually broke the rules. But if they didn't break the rules because they run in on the last day, little Jew lawyer weasel and goes, well, it says here that the president has the authority to just not confirm the vote. And if the vote's not confirmed, then he gets to pick his own. And then everyone's like, wait a second, can I see that piece of paper? And then they read the piece of paper and they go, oh, shit, we really got to change the rules here because this makes no sense because we have a procedure where it's just lawful for the president to just go, yep, I, I, I won. And here's like, we're not, you know what I mean? Like, imagine if on paper it was in the Constitution that the, uh, the president could just declare that we're not doing elections and he won. We'd all be outraged about it, and then we'd probably change that law. But if that was the law, that it wouldn't be illegal for him to do that, and you couldn't put him in jail for doing so. So, the first question in terms of finding Donald Trump guilty for attempting to, I guess, uh, circumvent a legal election was, was John Eastman's theory illegal for them to put forward? Does that make sense? I don't know if I said that with enough clarity. We might be a little bit more all over the place here than usual. So maybe I'll just repeat it and see if we can uh, get a little bit more clarity on the point. Did Donald Trump legal team find something that either was a loophole or could be reasonably argued is a loophole even if there was zero fraud and he was just claiming that there was fraud or they, or they were just claiming, hey, we found this loophole and we're stealing the election, would that have actually been an illegal activity? Haven't heard anyone ask this question. Haven't heard anyone addressed it. And it's kind of specific. So I'll just repeat it one more time because maybe you'll understand it and maybe I'll say it better. And then even if it's wrong, we'll just move on from it. So last time. Was there a possibility of a loophole in the way that the election laws were constructed that Donald Trump could have actually legally have just stolen an election? And so in pursuing that loophole, did not actually violate any laws. There you go. It took three tries, but I think that was pretty clear at the end of it. All right. Now they're actually pressing him on a novel legal theory. And the novel legal theory that they're using, the actual charge here, sounds very thin. Once again, we're only in the introduction to this stuff. We're about to actually go through some of the source materials. Now you have your next question, which is, can a president even be held accountable for committing a crime? 
So let's just assume that one, there was no loophole. There was no reason to try and search this loophole. And uh, two, the novel legal theory that he's being prosecuted with actually turns out to be right. Then you have the question of, are presidents even guilty of crimes that they commit while being president? And then you have, let's say all those things are true. So let's recap all those stages being true. One, there was no loophole for him to explore. Two, the novel legal theory ends up being correct. A president can be prosecuted for a crime. Then you have, was Donald Trump Trump actually intentionally trying to commit a crime or did he just have bad legal counsel? And now on top of all of that, let's just say all of that stuff, you know, everything that I just said in terms of the laws, does any of that even matter if you've got a prosecutor who's dirty, who's willing to bring a court case in an area that overwhelmingly hates the person? And so maybe the prosecutor does not care about whether or not he's got a good case and the jury itself doesn't care whether or not he's got a good case because in, it, because both parties are just like, hey, we don't like this person. And so maybe the law won't even matter because you got a corrupt system here of a prosecutor who is uh, playing to a particular audience in a particular state. All right. So now let's actually break down all those things. And what was supposed to just be a short, concise introduction so that if I went all over the place and you couldn't follow the rest of it, at least my introduction would have incredible clarity. So I think we're off to a good start here. All right. So let's start with this. This is from PBS NewsHour. Congress approves new election certification rules in response to January 6. So remember how they were yelling about how John Eastman was completely crazy and that everyone knew that this thing was illegal. So if this little legal leap, legal little loophole that Donald Trump was looking to take advantage of to stay in power, even if he lost an election, was so clearly batshit crazy and completely illegal, then why is it? That according to PBS NewsHour, Congress approved new election certification rules in response to January 6. So let's read a little bit from this article. The provisions amending the 1887 law, which has long been criticized as poorly and confusingly written, won bipartisan support and would make it harder for future president losers to prevent the ascension of their foes as Trump tried to do on January 6, 2021. So you telling me that the original law was open to interpretation and that perhaps Donald Trump trying to make use of a loophole to just steal an election was not actually illegal because you had a poorly written law that you had to change? Is that is that what this is saying? All right, let's continue. Jump in a paragraph. On January 6th, Trump targeted Congress ratification of the Electoral College's vote. He tried to exploit the vice president's role in reading out the state's electors to get Mike Pence to block Biden from becoming the next president by omitting some states Biden won from the role. The new provision makes clear that the vice president's responsibilities in the process are merely ceremonial and that the vice president has no say in determining who actually won the election. Well, ceremonies are stupid. So, yeah. I guess if the founding fathers or whatever idiot decided, hey, we need to have a ceremony where someone puts on a thing and pretends like they're all important, it's a little bit funny if someone else comes along and goes, oh, but this ceremony does technically give that guy the power. And so you know what? I got a pretty good loophole here. Let's continue. The new legislation also raises the threshold required for members of Congress to object to certifying the electors before only one member of the House and Senate respectively had to object to force a roll call vote on state's electors that helped make objections to new presidents something of a routine partisan tactic. 
Democrats objected to certifying both of George W. Bush's elections and Trump's in 2016. Those objections, however, were mainly symbolic and came after Democrats had conceded that the Republican candidates won the presidency. On January 6, 2021, Republicans forced a vote on certifying Biden's wins in Arizona and Pennsylvania, even after the violent attack on the Capitol as Trump continued to insist falsely that he won the election. That led some members of Congress to worry the process could be too easily manipulated. Let's continue. The new provisions also ensure only one slate of electors makes it to Congress after Trump and his allies unsuccessfully tried to create alternate states of electors in states Biden won. So I just want to point, was that a possibility under the old law? Was there actually a loophole there that you could just decide to create an alternate slate of electors because the law didn't prohibit that? Did you guys just have a bad way of running elections previously where the laws for how it was written could allow a president to just be like, yeah, we're just going to send different people. And then even if they lost, they could just win. I mean, I'm not saying that anyone should do that, but did you guys leave bad loopholes in the way that this was constructed, then in trying to take advantage of those loopholes was not actually illegal. Not saying you should have done it, but I'm just saying if Donald Trump outright stood up and said, you know what, I lost this election, but they left some loopholes in here, so I'm just going to stay in the job and you guys can go argue this at the Supreme Court. I mean, I don't think it would have stood, but the point I'm making is if you had a poorly written law and a guy's trying to make use of the loophole, is there actually... Uh, is there anything illegal in doing so? All right, let's continue. The bill creates a legal process if any of those electors are challenged by a presidential candidate. The legislation would also close a loophole. Oh, look at that. Even they're using the word loophole. That wasn't used in 2020, but election experts featured feared could be. A provision that state legislators can name electors in defiance of their state's popular vote in the event of a failed election. That term has been understood to mean a contest that was disrupted or so in doubt that there's no way to determine the actual winner, but it's not well defined in the prior law. Now, a state could move the date of its presidential election, but only in the event of extraordinary and catastrophic events like a natural disaster. Um, all right, let's stop there. You guys can go read the rest of this article on your own. Uh, the point that I'm making is that if there was a loophole that you guys needed to close because it actually allowed a president to theoretically just stay in office even if they had lost an election, then it sounds like what Donald Trump was doing wasn't illegal. Does that mean it was good? No. But I'm just saying, before we even get into the claims of fraud, whether or not there was election fraud, it sounds like you guys needed to change the way elections were done so that it wouldn't be illegal for a guy just to maybe try and stay in office after he'd even lost an election. Maybe that's too extreme of a way of putting it, but I think you guys get my point. All right. So now as we look into and we kind of cone down a little bit more clearly on what exactly the election fraud claims that Donald Trump is being prosecuted for, I'd like to play the following clip from Biden. That G7 conversation was tied to your predecessor who is about to launch another campaign. So how do you reassure them if that is the reason for their questioning that the former president will not return, that his political movement, which is still very strong, uh, will not oh, yeah. once again take power in the United <laughs> States. Well, um, we just have to demonstrate that he will not take power um, by, uh, if, we, uh, if he does run, uh, making sure he, uh, under legitimate efforts of uh, our Constitution, does not become the next president again. Um, 
All right, so it seems like they want to do everything they can not to leave it to the voters and to figure out how they can disqualify Donald Trump by, from running. On that note, I saw an article in the New York Post the other day where Bill Barr had said the following. Barr said he feels that the DOJ does not appear to go after Republicans more than Democrats. He fears that Trump, if reelected, would use the government to take out his opponents. And that's why I think it's so ironic all these people are getting huffy about weaponization, which they should, because we can't go tit for tat, he said. But Trump, as you say, I mean, he's very clear about it. I think there's no question that he believes these institutions should be used to go after his enemies. Whether it's criminal or not, someone who engaged in that kind of bullying about a process that is fundamental to our system and to our self-government shouldn't be anywhere near the Oval Office, Barr told Collins. And for him to be ta attacking a prosecutor who is investigating that with all the epithets, I don't know that word, and so forth, which he has no basis for, as, for, as far as I can tell, is ridiculous. I even think there might have been a secondary article where he said more clearly uh, Donald Trump can't get back into office because we know that he's going to then go after other people. But it seems to me like the powers that be look at all the tricks that they threw at Donald Trump. And they look at the way that they've weaponized the Department of Justice this time in terms of going to his house, grabbing the documents, and now pulling them into court onto every which way thing. And they've clearly broken from the norms, which is not prosecuting prior presidents. And I think they're now living with the reality of we absolutely cannot let this guy win because we violated power in a big way to go after him. And so if he actually had this power, he's probably going to come after us. All right. And then this was uh, a different article from The Hill in which Bill Barr says that he will testify against Donald Trump. Former Attorney General Bill Barr said he's willing to testify against President Donald Trump at his January 6th trial. This is later in the article. He noted that the case brought by special counsel Jack Smith was a challenging one, but that he does not think it runs afoul of the First Amendment. Once again, a challenging one, a novel legal theory. Because when the prosecutors are sitting around and they're trying to figure out what can we do to finally bust this guy and they're trying to twist the law. I mean, that already sounds to me if you're trying to push the law so that you can find someone guilty, you, like you've already decided that they're guilty and now you're trying to figure out how you can get them to be guilty. Like that already doesn't sound like necessarily like they always like to go, well, we're just going to follow the law wherever it leads. I even think Jack Smith, this is an equal application because whatever the law is, that's all we do here. No, it was Merrick Garland. Whatever the law is, we're just going to apply. Well, if you're taking the law and then trying to stretch it specifically, well, that doesn't sound like you're just following the law. It sounds like you're trying to push it and like reinterpret it because you decided that, this, that that actually sounds like the exact opposite. You're not reading the law and going, oh, well, the law clearly says you can't open up this door. And Donald Trump opened up this door, so he's guilty. You're actually doing the opposite. You go, Donald Trump's guilty. Oh, shit. None of these laws actually find him guilty. Well, what law can we stretch to say maybe he violated that one? So this is already an admission of weaponization. Remember when Merrick Garland, well, we're just reading the law and whatever it is, we apply it equally. Well, once you're conducting novel legal theories or even have Bill Barr going, hey, I'm all on board with this because I don't want Donald Trump weaponizing the Justice Department going after other people. But this is a challenging one. I think you've already admitted that this is not fair or it's not an equal treatment. All right. And then this is the last line that I underlined from this Hill article with Bill Barr that there was no evidence of fraud that would have changed the outcome. Uh, well, actually, I want to reread that. I want to reread that whole uh, paragraph. Well, I go through that in my book in painstaking detail, but on the three occasions at least, I told him in no uncertain terms that there was no evidence of fraud that would have changed the outcome. So firstly, 
you're admitting that there was fraud. And secondly, when you say that there was no fraud that would have changed the outcome, I guess, how do you know that if you didn't investigate it? If there was at least enough fraud that Donald Trump goes, hey, there's fraud here, but can we look into it? And then you go, well, there's not enough fraud for us to change the outcome. Even that sounds kind of kind of dicey because it sounds like, all right, I get it. Fine. Maybe Donald Trump, like there's always fraud. And so Donald Trump goes, hey, there's always fraud. And I'd like to do a little bit more research here because uh, and then you did a little bit of drumming up and maybe you didn't come back with anything. And even that you could say here. And I would go, all right, that sounds honest where he goes. Donald Trump said he thought that there was clear evidence of fraud. We uh, we started looking into it. We didn't see anything there. And so there was nothing out of the ordinary. I, I guess, maybe, maybe Bill Barr has even said that in other places, but I, I read at least what's reported here, and uh, it sounds to me like he's both admitting fraud, and if anything, he closed the doors on looking into Donald Trump's complaints, with at a minimum, still leaves it open-ended for Donald Trump to believe that there was fraud in the election. All right, so this was about the actual charge from the Wall Street Journal. The indictment acknowledges Trump had a right to challenge the election results and even falsely claim fraud. I mean, that's remarkable. And this is from the Wall Street Journal. So the prosecutors agree that Donald Trump can, cha- can challenge election results and he can even falsely, even if he doesn't believe that there's fraud, he can falsely claim it. So I guess if you just want people to overlook, like look back into the election and maybe find something that doesn't exist, you're allowed to say, hey, there was fraud here when there wasn't. Uh, or if you just want to undermine your political opponents, such as uh, Hillary Clinton, when she lost and she goes, well, that wasn't a real election because of because uh, uh, it was Russian, blah, 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 blah. So I guess you are allowed to falsely claim fraud. That's pretty interesting that you're holding the guy responsible for false, but you're legally allowed to falsely claim falsely. You can falsely claim fraud legally. But prosecutors said what he did went far beyond such rights. How do you go far beyond your rights to uh, claim fraud? Doesn't that sound silly? You're allowed to lie and you're allowed to make false claims, but you went beyond the false claims that we're allowing you to make. How do you quite qualify in law, I guess, the degree by which you can, uh, like, like what? so what false claims are on or off the table? Like, I would understand if you said you couldn't make false claims. That sounds easily provable where you go, hey, this is a true claim and this is a false claim. You made a false claim and so now you're in trouble for making a false claim. But how do you get in trouble? What is the metric like or or truth behind saying, hey, that was too false of a claim? Do you guys see the issue with that? Like in a yes or no situation where you go, yes, you can do this and no, you can't do this. Well, then you can clearly say, hey, you did the thing you weren't allowed to do. But if you're allowed to do the thing, I guess it's like you're allowed to punch someone in the face, just not with too much force. I guess maybe even that one you could prove because if the guy died, you could say retroactively that was too much force. And you could go, well, I punched him with what was the normal amount of force. Or I guess maybe you could even record if there was a recording of the person. You might get an expert to break down how forcefully the guy punched him. So maybe that wasn't the best example. All right, continuing. But prosecutors said what he did went far beyond such rights, and legal experts said speech used to commit a crime such as fraud isn't protected by the First Amendment. For each of the statutes under which Trump is charged, prosecutors have to prove some level of criminal intent. 
They don't necessarily have to prove that Trump knew he lost the election, former prosecutors said. So it just sounds a little bit thin that the guy is allowed to at least, is even allowed to make false claims, but you just think that his false claims were too false. And then also you got to prove that there was criminal intent, which sounds difficult to do if a guy had bad legal counsel. All right, now continuing. This was a uh, another Wall Street Journal article, The Unprecedented Jack Smith. Take Mr. Trump out of the equation and consider more broadly what even the New York Times calls Mr. Smith's novel approach. A politician can lie to the public, Mr. Smith concedes. Yet if that politician is advised by others that his comments are untruthful and nonetheless uses them to justify acts that undermine government function, he is guilty of a conspiracy to defraud the country. Dishonest politicians who act on dubious legal claims. There aren't enough prisons to hold them all. Consider how many politicians might already be doing uh, time uh, had prosecutors applied this standard earlier. Both Al Gore and George W. Bush filed lawsuits in the 2000 election that contained bold, if untested, legal claims. Surely both candidates had advisors who told them privately that they may have legitimately lost and neither publicly conceded. An inch until the Supreme Court resolved the matter. Might an ultimate sore winner have used this approach to indict the loser for attempting to thwart the democratic process? And why limit the theory to election claims? In 2014, the justices held unanimously that President Barack Obama had violated the Constitution by decreeing that the Senate was in recess, that he could install several appointees without confirmation. It was an outrageous move, one that Mr. Obama's legal counsel certainly warned was a loser, yet the White House vocally insisted that the president had total constitutional authority to do it. Under Mr. Smith's standard, that was a lie that Mr. Obama used to defraud the public by jerry-rigging the function of a labor board with a legal appointment. What's betting? What's the betting someone told President Biden if he didn't have the power to raise $430 billion in student loan debt? Oh, wait, that's right. He told himself, I don't think I have the authority to do it by signing with a pen, he said in 2021. The House Speaker advised him it was illegal. People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not, Nancy Pelosi said. Yet Mr. Biden later adapted the, the, the lie that he did and took action to defraud taxpayers by obstructing the federal function of loan processing until the Supreme Court made him stop. If even a former president can be hit with conspiracy charges, what's to protect a mere congressman? Just to simplify what he's talking about is that if politicians are not allowed to lie because it's considered defrauding the American public, then isn't that what politicians are always doing? And let's just say that there are certain instances where they even go on and they win cases because they think that they have authority. And so they must have some legal advisors advisors that say, hey, I don't think uh, you have the illegal authority to do this. And then you get other legal advisors who go, I think you do, and I think I can win this in court. And then you pick the guy who says, I think you do, and I think I can win this in court for you because he's telling you what you like to hear and you actually believe him because two people argue in front of me. You got one advisor who's a lawyer who goes, hey, this is batshit crazy. It's not going to work. You get another one who goes, no, this will work. I'm sure that happens every single time these people ever make a decision about what they're going to do. They get some people... I mean, that's the way I tend to make business decisions. One person goes, hey, this is a horrible idea. Another person goes, this is a great idea. I'll take the lead on it. I think it's going to work. And you go, all right, I'll let you try it. So the point being, and I like this standard. I like it. Hey, they can't lie to us. They can't try and push authority that they don't have. And if they do, they can be guilty of uh, defrauding the American public. I like that standard. The point just being is if you were to try and take that standard and apply it across the board, uh, you'd have every politician in jail.
And then this was another Wall Street Journal article, last one we're going to read, I believe. It's, this tripe indictment imperils the presidency. I just want to read this one paragraph. The president is immune from civil and criminal liability for actions taken in the um, execution of the office. The immunity is absolute, like the immunity accorded to judges and prosecutors. Courts have allowed only that the president may be subject to subpoena in certain circumstances that don't impose great burdens on his ability to function as chief executive. Former presidents can be held liable for personal actions while in office, but only those that fall beyond the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. In Nixon v. Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court held that Richard Nixon was immune from a civil damage action in which a former federal employee claimed he was illegally fired as punishment for revealing Pentagon costs overrun. We'll stop there. The point just being that uh, Donald Trump, as president, uh, might not even be capable of committing a crime unless the crime is just personal but in this case if it had to do with the election part of his job is overseeing good elections so it would fall into being a part of his job so let's just kind of recap as they bring a criminal case against donald trump one can donald trump even commit a crime while he's president two was this even a crime and that you know if he's got John Eastman working as a legal advisor saying, hey, I think you got a loophole here. And technically that loophole existed. So then trying to make use of the loophole, was that even a crime? And then lastly, was he intentionally trying to commit a crime, which is going to be tough to prove when he's got the legal advisors that he had. I'm not going to read any of this, but you guys can go take a look. I have an article up on the screen from Week Magazine that outlines his co-conspirators, which include legal counsel such as Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and all these other idiots who were clearly giving him bad... He would have to actually prove. You'd have to probably flip one of those lawyers to say, Donald Trump actually sat down and said to me, I know I didn't win the election, but I'm working with you. I am hiring you, Sidney Powell, because I believe that you are the person who is going to go lie on my behalf and work with me to defraud the American public and go win us this election. Uh, so... I guess that was a very long 42-minute way of saying that at least uh, not a lawyer, uh, maybe it should have been one, I'd love to give presentations like this before the jury and go, Your Honor, Donald Trump's off the hook. And then they just go, I don't know what the fuck you just said for 45 minutes. I mostly spraced out while you put up pieces of paper and tangented and ranted all over the place. Uh, the point just being, you know, they might find him guilty because he's in D.C., uh, but this seems like it could have been left open to the voters, and it doesn't seem like an actual law was broken, uh, which, similar to the Biden thing, which maybe he, they just haven't investigated him enough because he actually did commit some crimes, uh, seems to be part of the issue here is that everyone gets to kind of live in these gray areas. All right, let's move on to another topic. But before we do, why don't we take a moment to thank one of our loyal sponsors, YoKratom.com, home of the $60 Kilo. It's summer, you're out there, you're relaxing, you're getting on boats, you're going on parties, and uh, if you never checked it out, you'll create them. Home of the $60 kilo. You probably don't need a full kilo. You really don't need a full kilo. Let me tell you, you don't need a full kilo. Don't take, don't, don't take, you know, I, I, if I, me, I'll take a single pill every once in a while, and that's the extent. I don't even think I'd go through a kilo in 10 years. If you're out there and you're going through kilos, God bless and God bless that there's a company out there that can get you an entire kilo for just $60. I guess the point just being, if you're a person who is into Kratom, 60 bucks you can get yourself a full kilo. There's no place else in the entire world that can do that for you. YoKratom.com. All right, next we've got uh, 
Elon Musk, I love this. This is such a great business play. He said, Musk to pay legal bills of people unfairly treated for posting on the platform. So this is from uh, Reuters. Um, Elon Musk has said his ex-social media platform will pay the legal bills and sue on behalf of people who have been treated unfairly by employers because of posting or liking something on the site formerly known as Twitter. If you're unfairly treated by your employer due to posting or liking something on this platform, we will fund your legal bill, Musk said in a post, adding that there will be no limits to funding the bills. This is brilliant. This is brilliant business. Because if he were to win even just one case, or if he were to cost a company a shit ton of money on just one case, he can change the entire dynamic. Like, at the moment, it costs a company nothing to fire you, and I guess to placate this woke mob, it just, it caught, there's no cost to them. It's just easier to them because they go, oh, other people might get out, like, everyone just placates the outrage, which is nonsense. It, 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 like there aren't even that many people who are typically upset about these things and yet they just side with the woke mob because it's just easier than dealing with the noise but you know what happens when there's consequence for the noise such as what just happened with Bud Light Bud Light was sitting around and they went oh there's all these woke people and so if we can just placate the woke people everything remains nice in Bud Light world and then you know what happened the conservatives went fuck that we're actually your customers here don't side with them what is going on here that the world has become so socialized and there's so much benefits in siding with this woke nonsense that you're going to preach to me, your actual customer, things that I don't agree with. And so they punish them. I mean, how much, uh, how much damage, damage has Anheuser-Busch taken over that stupid Dylan Mulvaney video, which was a bad marketing move by some lady who exactly is out of some, you know, fucking socialist board of propaganda of, well, we had, I had a clear mandate that we were supposed to inspire, and how do you inspire on the wealthiest brand that I'm also going to declare as a dying brand? Because even though there's mountains of profits and people that like this, the fact that they like it, but it's not in the way that I want them to like it i'm gonna say that it's actually not profitable unbelievable so it's good you actually created a cost for that brand and other companies are kind of on notice oh shit we better be careful if i'm harley davidson i better not run uh i might not want to run a the float at the pride parade and so in this case if elon musk actually steps up and he starts suing the fuck out of people for, uh, I guess, I, I, I don't know. I don't even know what these lawsuits look like for taking action against people for being on the platform. Well, it's good for his business because it doesn't scare people away from using the platform. Because, like, you can have everyone going, oh, shit, I better not engage on Twitter at all because if I do, I might get fired from my company. And so he's standing up and says, listen, anyone fires you for having fun over here, I'll go fuck that guy up. Good business decision. All right, I think there's... uh. One more story that we're going to cover, and then I'm going to come back tomorrow uh, with a new episode because uh, there was some uh, there was a zero hedge article with a number of videos of uh, Pfizer taking questions uh, in a Australia, uh, I guess, Senate uh, hearing or I don't know, Australian politics or, you know, what they do over there. But uh, it did seem like there was a, I mean, it's, it's years too late. I don't know why you wouldn't ask these questions before mandates. I would think you should ask the same questions the politicians of, why didn't you have this exact meeting asking these questions two years ago? But anyways, they did a meeting and uh, there was a, a Zero Hedge article that really had 
all of the highlight videos, and we're going to run through all of that. Uh, but we're going to close this thing out with one more article. Uh, and then once again, summerportstore.com and sheathunderwear.com, promo code RYM, and get 20% off greatest underwear that's ever graced the balls of men. And then we'll be back tomorrow with another episode. This is from the Wall Street Journal, uh, and the numbers were staggering, uh, of Ukraine amputees. So this was... In Ukraine, amputations already evoke scale of World War One. Tens of thousands estimated to have lost limbs since the start of the war, a toll not seen in recent armed conflicts in the West. In February, Russian Damas something, a 19-year-old Ukrainian soldier, came under fire near the front line of something in southwestern Ukraine. Shapnel tore her leg off above the knee. She clutched her severe severed thigh bone and watched medics place her severed leg into the vehicle that took her to a hospital. Uh, I just really wanted the numbers. I didn't need the personal story. Is one of between 20,000 and 50,000 Ukrainians who have lost one or more limbs since the start of the war, according to previously undisclosed estimates by prosthetic firms, doctors, and charities. The actual figures could be higher because it takes time to register patients after they undergo the procedure. Some are only amputated weeks or months after being wounded. And Kiev's counteroffensive underway, the war may be entering a more brutal phase. By comparison, some 67,000 Germans and 41,000 Britons had to have amputations during the course of World War I, when the procedure was often only available to prevent death. Fewer than 2,000 U.S. veterans of the Afghanistan and Iraq invasions have amputations. I think we don't get enough information about how brutal this war is. And when you get people who are yelling, hey, don't we just have to hold Ukraine, uh, uh, Putin accountable? It's like, well, are you, are you going to fight? Is this you and your and your relatives? You know, I, I this comes like we don't see the cost, but it's really costly. And I don't know. I don't like I don't like that gamble. I don't like yelling about how other people are like we have to we have to spend money and we have to use our resources to empower these people to win what looks to be an unwinnable fight. And like how much I don't know, it's just like how much suffering and shit do you have to overlook to take that perspective of well, we just have to hold Putin accountable. And then just to kind of look a little bit bigger picture with it, like, aren't there other ways, like, I, I, you know, aren't there other ways that we could live in a world where dictators aren't just running into other borders? And I, I know this is some dumb hippie shit, but isn't it just by kind of leading by example and creating a hill on a mountain with free trade? where people that get along are all being prosperous. It's like, you, you know, people are like, because they kind of walk with the moral high ground of, well, if we don't do something, then Putin's evil will go unmatched. But aren't there, I, I don't know, like even just from talking from an ideal standpoint, isn't there a different way that maybe we can operate that would keep him in check? Like maybe you just create enough resource. Like, I mean, it's why the sanction system doesn't work. It's because... We don't really have free trade and unbelievable prosperity between one set of nations that if you cross that set of nations, you're completely like screwed because you're left out of the system. Uh, and, and, and we contribute to that. I guess just the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is I just think the, uh, the toll of the war is uh, somewhat just like overlooked. And then you get people who are just going, well, like, oh, yeah, we, we, we got to check. But it's like, at, at what cost? At what cost do you got to just, like, check the guy, you know? And what, for the ego of, well, because then the world will be perceived as mightier than he is. 
And is there no other recourses? I guess I'm kind of like a sales guy, like low-hanging fruit of people dying and suffering. And it's like the low-hanging fruit right now of preventing it is, well, let's just end the war. And then, yes, I guess Putin walks away with certain territories that he otherwise wouldn't have had. And he could then feel empowered. But, like, I don't know. This seems like the lower-hanging fruit of just ending some suffering now and what looks to be escalating suffering. And then you can, like, they're almost hopeful. Like, they got wishful thinking of Putin. I don't even know what their wishful thinking is. But, like, my wishful thinking is it's like this is the low-hanging fruit of, like, just stopping suffering. And then maybe we'll figure out other solutions for these things that you're so afraid of, of, I guess, him then taking over the whole country or feeling empowered to invade other countries or, or whatever those fears are. All right, we're going we're gonna to be back uh, tomorrow with another episode. Uh, tomorrow's episode will not be on this platform uh, at all uh, because it is, uh, I don't think, as an upstanding member of the YouTube community, that they would appreciate it. So we're going to do an entire episode tomorrow just of that Zero Hedge article, uh, which I will stream to uh, Twitter, Twitch, Odyssey, and I guess that's it. And then it will be up shortly after that as video. Um, And then uh, just to kind of brainstorm here, schedule a little bit in uh, regular episodes, is um, I think, I'm just talking out loud here a little bit, doing a lot of travel and I'm finding that Wednesdays I kind of need to spend the whole day actually not reading the news and somewhat working my day job as a catch-up day, which means I don't think I can go live on Wednesdays anymore until about the end of September uh, when I think I can go back to somewhat prioritizing doing a Wednesday RYM. I think I will be going back to doing some just audio-only episodes and I think most of the impressions I get happen to be the audio-only listeners. If I just use a Zoom and I go audio-only, I can actually get much better audio quality um, than going live. Uh, which for I don't want to I don't want to quite break down the the, the production reasons for that because it's boring. Uh, so I'm just looping you guys in. I think that there will be probably one. Well, there'll be one home episode a week, which is this long format going live. Um, and then there might be, or there might only just be one, I guess, live episode, um, on some of these weeks with porch tour. I guess I don't really know. Cause we're going to be doing a bunch of live podcasts with the porch tour. Uh, but I guess I'm just looping everyone in that there might be some more audio only podcast just going up as podcasts. Um, and then hopefully, you know, sometime after October, November, maybe I'll get a producer so we can, uh, kind of revamp what the videos look like and, you know, definitely do Monday, Wednesdays and, maybe paywall uh, one episode a week to uh, fund the producer and, you know, see what kind of uh, supporting listenership uh, actually exists out there. Um, Not that it will be required, but, you know, there will be uh, probably one paywalled episode. All right, that's our episode. I've tired myself out talking. Thank you to the sponsors, sheathunderwear.com, promo code RYM, get yourself 20% off, and yokratum.com, home with a $60 kilo. Uh, and other than that, come hang out. Summer Porch Tour is in action. www.summerporchtour.com. Uh, outside of Nashville, in Pekin, Indiana, and Birmingham, Alabama this weekend. Have a great day. Thanks for hanging out with me. End of the episode. End it. It's over.